Welcome to Human Factors Cast, your weekly podcast for all things human factors, psychology, and design. Hey everybody, it's episode 102. Today's October 15th, 2020, and you're listening to Human Factors Cast. I'm your host, Nick Rome. I'm joined by Mr. Arnsdorf. There he is. Hey. How are you, everybody? It's good to be back podcasting. Yes, it is good to be back. Like, we were talking about this before the show, but for us here, um, aside from last week, which was kind of an anomaly in itself, uh, we've actually been out since, uh, since like, what was it, like uh, like the 10th of last month or something? Because we, we did the pre-show recorded, um, so we are... Uh, we were operating off of old information, and uh, you know the, the HFES ended up being awesome, and and uh, yeah, I think we recorded on the that on the tenth of September. So, um, yeah, it's been a minute. It's been a minute. It has. It's definitely <laughs> been a minute. It's been. It's good to be back in the seat recording on a Thursday night. It is. Uh, we got some excellent news story today, uh, and we're going to be taking a question from our uh, community as well. Uh, so. We're going to be talking about all the ways this F-35 tried to kill its pilot prior to uh, an Air Force base crash. So that'll be fun to break down. Uh, I had a fun, I had a ton of fun reading uh, that article. And, um, you know, hey, before we begin, though, I just I want to do a quick programming note slash shout out. Thank you so much for everyone that joined us last week at HFES. Um, if you are a first time listener to the show, uh, please stay we we love to have you welcome to the show it's where we you know blake and i sit here and talk about uh articles and news stories that have to do with human factors issues uh and we try to break it down best we can uh in a in an environment that's fun and lighthearted. uh so so welcome everyone we are happy to have you uh we usually pick up a lot of listeners um during our HFES coverage. So, uh, again, if you're new here, welcome. We're happy to have you. And uh, if you haven't already, take a listen to our HFES 2020 retrospective. Um, that was a ton of fun. And, and you know, huge thank you uh, to everyone who joined us, uh, like I said, last week. Uh, we had a ton of fun breaking down all those panels in our Slack and uh, everything like that. So, Blake, though, it's it's been... Like I said, a hot minute for us. What have you been up to? Man, not a whole lot to be completely honest. Just kind of the same old, same old. Uh, but it was it was awesome to kind of join you last week for the HFES retrospectives because for our normal listeners, I actually wasn't able to go and experience any of HFES. So it was really cool to get a different perspective from both Nick and then a couple of people that had joined him during, a, I think it was a Zoom call. But anyway, so that was really fun to take a listen to. And I appreciate everybody that's, you know, joined the Slack as well. It's been a lot of fun to kind of go in there and see all the awesome discussion going on. Uh, but Nick... This is, it's coming for me that time of year where the holidays are coming. That means another Call of Duty is about to drop for the end of 2020 to wrap things Uh up. Yep. And so it's time for me to bury myself in a cave. But anyway, I I think we've talked about this before on the show and you've done a really good job of breaking down kind of the, the impact of cloud gaming and the benefits of something like Google Stadia's platform. And I have to say every year I get in the same way same experience, right? So I'll go to download their pre-order the next Call of Duty or whatever it is that's coming out and like towards the end of the year near the holidays. And you try and get everything like preloaded and it there's always some kind of set of hurdles that come with 
downloading games. So I always dread it like no other. But anyway, yesterday, because the beta was going to open up today for Call of Duty, I went ahead and just pre-ordered it so I could get a beta code. And I expected to have to go through the same old experience where you have to, you know, sign in 12 times, hope that you remember the code or even get one so you can get into the beta from Microsoft. Uh, but I was really pleasantly surprised by a lot of things that I guess Microsoft and Xbox have done to eliminate a lot of the pain that is typically associated with that process. Like literally the only thing that I did was sign into my Microsoft account on my laptop, made the purchase and everything else was taken care of on the Xbox on its own when I turned it on. I didn't have to enter in codes. I didn't have to start downloads for any kind of like update packs or anything like that. And I think one of the interesting kind of takes they've done is because a lot of people will have been playing the, you know, the last iteration of Call of Duty for the past year. They integrated the launcher for the new beta inside of the existing Call of Duty platform only if you had purchased or pre-ordered a copy for when it comes out in November. So I don't know. It was just one of those things where I, I think and hope that the impact of like cloud gaming and some of the aspects of that, of it being so fast and so seamless, are actually starting to impact other platforms and other companies and how they think about the whole process. Well, a couple things. So I'm, I'm glad you actually brought this point up. Um, and I'll talk about PlayStation side of things later, but I, I just had a couple quick follow-up questions. So are you saying that you you basically just bought the thing and it automatically downloaded everything that you needed to to your Xbox while you were um, not even on the device and it was kind of just in sleep mode or whatever? Yeah, so it it definitely did that exactly. And I didn't have to like enter in any kind of code or anything. It was just all connected through my account and but I think my caveat to that is, is I've used my Xbox a bunch of times for video game streaming on Twitch. So I already have like a connection that is set up between my machine and my Xbox. Uh, so if it's in sleep mode, it can still connect to it and right. do things on it. Um, so I would imagine that's why it was like so uber seamless to me. But yeah, that was basically how it went down, surprisingly enough. Yeah. So you're you're absolutely right, though, it, with like some of the these innovations coming from uh, the cloud gaming side of things, or at least, you know, I don't know if they're necessarily cloud gaming, but we saw them first with one of Stadia's uh, presentations. But we have started to see some of that permeate with uh, some of these next generation consoles, right, with the Xbox Series S and the PlayStation 5. Um, you know, so they just gave out uh, kind of an example of the user interface today for the PlayStation 5. Uh, and we could talk a little bit about this, but the long story short is that they're going to have something very similar where, you know, I can have like a picture in picture of what you have on your screen coming through to my screen and I can see it kind of in the bottom corner. They also have additional sort of helper tips uh, that they're called activities and they're basically like, hey, we noticed you haven't gotten this thing and we estimate it'll take you about 10 minutes to get this thing. And to do this thing, you need to do this, that, the other thing. And oh, by the way, here is some embedded YouTube videos that show you exactly how to do that. And the developer sets that up, right? So this is one of the things that Stadia actually presented way back when, uh, when they, you know, last year, I guess it was March or something, when they did their initial, like, reveal trailer. And I think a lot of companies paid attention and were like, oh, yeah, no, that is something that we would want. Um, and so there's a lot of uh, companies trying to do that 
Um, and, you know, we'll see a, a lot of different things where there's like the quick resume, you know, you can pick up right from where you left off. Uh, there's a lot of stuff in common with this next generation that I think may or may not have come from the cloud gaming scene. Um, but I think it's just generally the next generation of what gaming looks like, right? And it's that seamless experience and you want to spend less time in loading screens, which is why they've invested in these like HDDs um, to where you're going to be able to just start and stop instantly uh, and and you know, everyone kind of knows that that's where the future of gaming is going. It's not necessarily better graphics, although you will get better graphics. It's just a matter of uh, like quicker loader time, quicker loading time, spending less time doing, uh, you know, that that tedious task of starting up a game and waiting and all that stuff. So that's that's, I guess, my two cents. Yeah, I mean, I totally agree. And I, it's cool to see the other platforms kind of adapting to it in different ways, like whether it's hardware, but also like trying to bring in different aspects that are, maybe you're seeing in Stadia. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a fun time to be a gamer for sure. But what's been going on with you, man? I feel like it's been a while. It has been a while. Speaking of fun times to be a gamer, uh, Star Wars Squadrons came out. Um, <laughs> so this is, if you're unfamiliar with it, this is actually the latest Star Wars video game that comes out. You are a pilot um, that is basically, uh, you can either fly for the um, New Republic or the Empire. It takes place after Episode Six, so it's kind of the story of the you know remnants of the Empire trying to fight back what they can. Um, and, you know, I had some great conversation with Dan in our Slack, um, who was talking about how the mastery of the control schemes in the game are, are so complex. So it's, it's very easy to pick up, but it, it can be, you know, the, the, what's the, the skill curve, uh, you can master this game, but it'll take you a very long time to do so. There's advanced maneuvers like drifting and power management and a bunch of different, um, controls that really, really, really uh, depend on the skill level of the pilot, right? So you have like, you're cross-checking all these systems in your cockpit, like actual radar readouts. You're looking at um, readouts of uh, like your power to your engines. You're looking at readouts of uh, your your shields and health and everything like that. Um there's a lot to this game. It's very complex. and Sounds like it, yeah. And, uh, yeah, I, I mean, it's a, it's a super cool game from that perspective. But I got to talk I, – I, so I've been playing mostly in virtual reality. Uh, this whole game is built around – well, I feel like it was built around virtual reality. From the start, they were like, yeah, we want you to be able to be in the cockpit. Um, and I'm play, playing on PlayStation VR and uh, – there is an undeniable advantage of playing in virtual reality for a game like this. Um, because if you think about it, you're in first person view. If you're, if you're just on a TV, you're in first person view, you're looking straight ahead and you shoot at what's in front of you. Now extrapolate that to VR. You're sitting in a cockpit and you have an additional field or sorry, you have an additional control methodology for your camera, which is your neck and head moving around. So you can actually track an enemy as they fly up past you and they can still be in your vision because you're looking up through the windshield of your cockpit. Whereas those players on, uh, you know, just a TV, they wouldn't see that. They would just see straight ahead. And you can move your controller up and around, but it's 
much less elegant than just moving your head up and being able to track. So it's like it, there's just this undeniable advantage of playing in VR. And so I've felt really spoiled just sitting in VR playing this. Um, that sounds incredible. And I wouldn't have even really have thought of the disadvantage to playing on a flat screen in that kind of environment, but you're right. I mean, you can't even, you can't even like get a heads up on things that might be coming around you. That's so nuts. Yeah. It's, it's so bad though, to the point where I won't play new Republic, which is like traditionally rebel ships. You have the X wing, the A wing, B wing, Y wing, or sorry, not B wing, uh, Y wing and V wing. And, uh, I, I won't play those ships um on a flat screen i'll only play empire because if you're thinking about empire you're just looking through a circular uh you know viewport you don't have that same spatial awareness that you have in a rebel ship or a new republic ship um because you're just looking forward and so that that to me is a little bit more palatable when i'm playing just on a flat screen tv you know i'll i'll you're just looking forward anyway um, the only thing you miss is perhaps a, a little bit of that. I'm going to lean forward and look out the you know bottom of my cockpit, which you can't get on the other ships. But it's it's so interesting. And um, if anyone wants to play the uh, squadrons, let me know. I am happy to do that with our community. <laughs> I I love this game so much. Um, and you know it really benefits from having a team of people that you talk with. Um, especially for some of these objective based games it's it's a it's a lot of fun uh and so if anyone wants to play let me know hit me up on our slack and i will send you my ea id so we can connect um yeah ton of fun though that sounds epic man so cool i'm i'm just excited to like kind of take a look at it and just see what it's like to feel like you're even looking in the cockpit because on my end i wouldn't be playing in vr um, right so it just sounds like a lot of fun yeah, we got to get you in on it too. We'll just do a whole Human Factors cast uh, squad. There we go. All right, man. Well, I think we should get into this next part of the show. That we like to call Human Factors News. This is where we talk about everything related to the field of Human Factors. This could be anything from medical, aviation, security, robotics, whatever it is. As long as it relates to the field of Human Factors. And boy, oh boy, do we got a doozy this week. Um... So, uh, and actually, you know, this one does come courtesy of Dan, the the person in the Slack who I was talking about who also plays Squadron. So this is actually very relevant to that conversation as well. So, Blake, take it away. Excellent. All right. So the pilot of you of the U.S. Air Force F-35A stealth fighter that crashed at Eglin Air Force Base in Florida this past summer struggled with an extraordinary catalog of problems before he ejected from the jet. Though high landing speed was determined to be the key culprit, issues with the pilot's helmet, the aircraft's oxygen system, and the software behind the jet's fly-by-wire flight control system all contributed to the accident, according to a recently released official report. As a result of the crash report, the Accident Investigation Board president determined that no fewer than six factors led to the loss of the F-35A. The key factor came out of the investigation was the fact that the pilot was attempting to land an excess- at an excessive speed. However, the tail was also unresponsive due to a problem with the flight control logic that wasn't widely known up to that point. There are other disturbing issues outlined in the final report, among them numerous errors made by the pilot, the f- 
the aviator was fatigued in part due to issues with the jet's on-demand oxygen system, leading to cognitive degradation, uh, while a misaligned helmet-mounted display meant that he was distracted at a critical point as well. After ejecting, the pilot sustained a non-threatening life injuries uh, and was transported to the 96th Medical Group Hospital for evaluation and monitoring. Nick, there is a lot of things and problems that are named in that particular crash, and I can only imagine the chaos that had to have been going on in that cockpit at the time. Yeah, no kidding. I I was looking for... Uh, so in this article, they don't really do a great job of uh, explaining what the six distinct issues were, so I tried to go through and, and pull those out myself. Um, and we can kind of talk through them one by one. I'll go through the list here. This is the list that I came up with from reading this article. So there was the issue with controls. There was the issue with the HMD, uh, head-mounted display. There was the issue with the oxygen system. There was an issue with mental fatigue. There was an issue with the control logic. And then last but not least, there was a, an issue with pilot distraction. And I think they all play into each other, obviously, is what you know came down for... Uh, you know, making making this landing so difficult for this pilot. Um, we can we can talk about each of these individually. Um, so I think we we let's start with the controls, right? We'll just we'll just pull these out one by one. So um, the controls basically, uh, you know, there, there's um, let's see here at the controls of the F-35A in question. Uh, the pilot maintained a steady speed of 202 knots on the approach, right? This is correct for the phase of flight, but would be a major contributor in the accident later on. Um, and then uh, problems were beginning to make themselves known, distracting the pilot from the task at hand. So we have the controls. Um, and like I said, that'll, that'll come into play a little bit further on with the control logic. Um, but we can talk about the the head-mounted display now. Uh, so this head-mounted display, they first noticed that it kind of seemed to be misaligned um, to the horizon. So the F-35 doesn't have that fixed heads-up display um, found on some of the legacy fighters. Uh, but it actually projects that data onto the helmet's visor. Um, so, oh, okay. Got yeah, it. so it's projected onto the, the pilot. And so this, I think, uh, because it was misaligned, you know, it, they were... Um, they were struggling with not only the misalignment, but also with the brightness of it, making it difficult to focus. Right. So this was that green glow phenomenon in a in a cockpit where you just have so many green things around you that it's just it's it's just a blur at that point. Yeah. There's no way to like make any visual distinctions. Yeah. And so after they checked that uh, virtual heads up display against the the data from the instrument landing system. They adjust, he adjusted his aim point and, and glide scope as the jet kind of neared that runway, runway threshold. Um, so basically what the data told him is that the, that glide path was too high and the jet's attitude needed correcting. Um, so it was basically the, the jet was too nose down for a landing and he tried to uh, correct that and the misaligned display readings became even more confusing to the pilot, right? So you have you have not only this issue of the head-mounted display, but it's contributing to um, the pilot who is uh, sitting there kind of trying to adjust for this, and it's it's confusing, right? It's yeah, Human Factors like, 101. It really is. I mean, it, it's funny because the way I read the 
blurb in the article is yet again we see like a, a a quick jump to blame the operator but if we like carefully as you did go through the story it sounds like a lot of this is kind of a in some ways a misdesign of a heads-up display to start things off or kick it off real hard because i could only imagine i mean if if this thing's not aligned with the horizon and you're making adjustments based off what it's telling you and then realizing okay that really doesn't make sense based off my training i mean it it could only lead to really bad things for you or you making these cognitive degraded cognitive decisions yeah, honestly, this whole so every single factor in this leads me to go, wow, and this pilot survived. And I mean, I guess that says a lot for everything that was going on in the cockpit. Um, and this is why we can't look at human factors in a void, right? Like we can't just look at any one system and say this was the problem with this uh, incident. It, it's always a variety of things that contribute to it, right? So. Um, I'm going to keep going through this. This is, these are some bullet points on the article. So I'm, I'm reading some of these verbatim, but the, um, the, the middle, the HMD misalignment, uh, was identified as the critical confounding item that ultimately resulted in an oversaturation of the pilot. Uh, so that pilot, um, had previously experienced misalignment with another HMD, um, and the maintainers address those issues on ground, but without sort of these modifications, there's no way of checking that alignment once in inside the aircraft. Um, and then uh, last but not least here with the HMD, uh, the pilot had never experienced this specific HMD error before at night um, and not during this critical phase of flight. Uh, so, um, you know, the, the report basically uh, reveals that they're they're. The simulator actually trains pilots uh, to fly HMD out approaches, but do not sort of do that for uh, they they don't emphasize the misaligned approaches. Interesting. So that's that's kind of a you know this. I mean, that's a fun human factors problem, right? What does that mean for the system? Do you just start training for a lot of different misaligned approaches to like get them used to the context? There's, I don't know this. Per- Although this is scary as hell, this presents a lot of interesting kind of problems from the human factors perspective in terms of how would you sort it out? Do you update the software? Do you change the entire design? What really fits in the budget might just be training and training things at a like kind of a, a disjointed or misaligned way. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I don't know. If, I, I don't know if training would effectively uh, fix this, right? Because you have you have to change your whole mental model at that point because if you're you're training to the HMD and then you have to train again for misaligned and if you mix up the procedure one for the other like that that could be really bad um and so you know i think part of the solution here would be to just train um you know HMD is out approaches and then say hey if it's misaligned just turn it off and and rely on your HMD out approach uh, instead. Um, but again, this happened sort of at a really critical point in the flight path. So it's like without, you know, having some AI buddy on board that automatically does that for you, there's no way to really s- switch into it, you know, unless you, you saw it going, you know, before, before making the landing approach. Um, yeah. It's tough. Oh, I wonder if there's like lessons learned they can take from, you know, fixed displays. I would imagine there are in some ways, but it, it 
that sounds like the best bet is basically go back to your basics without the actual HMD in the case that, that something goes wrong like this. But like you said, in, in a critical phase of flight, because I think this mentions that it's like in landing, that, that that's just like so that's such a critical thing for like saving the aircraft, saving your life, doing the right things. Um, and I think you're right. Going back to what you said, I mean, even we're only a couple, you know, so, like we're in controls right now and in the HMD specifically. And it is kind of amazing. This guy lived through this experience. Yeah. Well, let's get into the oxygen system. So this in itself was like a, a failure of, um, technology or, or equipment, but it, it actually impacted the operator in ways that um, will become more apparent here when we talk about mental fatigue. But this oxygen system, so this oxygen system in the F-35 differs from those used in other jets. Uh, so, um, you know, they a lot of pilots report feeling sort of Oh, excuse me, more fatigued than normal um, when compared to their, you know, legacy aircraft. So I'm not quite sure what's going on there. I don't know if it's, you know, releasable, <laughs> but um, but that's that's notable in the sense that the oxygen system for this specific jet uh, fatigues pilots compared to the other jets that they've piloted in the past. And that leads to mental fatigue. Right, which is which is cause four that I've identified here, um, and so basically, when this pilot was asked what you know out of ten, what what's your mental fatigue, they responded a four um, on a routine basis, but on the night of the mishap, they, he reported a six. So obviously, already sort of fatigued, um, and and this type of thing, they they said raised the issue of emerging research into. Um, physiological consideration called work of breathing, uh, which is sort of that that physiological toll taken on a pilot's cognitive uh, capacities as a result of breathing uh, through the jet's unique oxygen system. So, so again, these are kind of tied together with that mental fatigue. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know. Like, I can't imagine getting used to one system and then trying to adapt to another one. Um, and I, I mean, it is difficult, right? Like, I would imagine it's the same as like, I, I don't know, this might be a bad analogy here, but like using one set of weights and then using another set of weights that are the same in terms of um, the load, but maybe have a different ergonomic factor or something and it just feels different and you might be more physiologically fatigued based on trying to adapt for that, right? I mean, we it's a bad example, but we see it we see it in other places. Yeah, and I would also think I don't know, a lot of us have like gotten on planes before and flown. I don't know about you, but I can definitely tell a difference in the quality of oxygen that I'm able to take in or how hard it is to breathe. So imagine that amplified by you're flying an F series aircraft and you're breathing through a system that's generated to do this. Um, but, uh, but the one interesting point you have here in the mental fatigue section you outlined is that like the incident rate has gone up pretty far over the past few years. And it seems to be related to oxygen systems. 
So I can imagine like trying to figure out how to do a lot of complex maneuvers, know what all the dials and whistles mean in your aircraft, trying to read a like an HMD or a heads-up display. On top of breathing probably less, um, you know, less breathing less easily just because you're flying through space at a really fast speed, but then dependent on an oxygen system doing its job completely. So I can only imagine that if this thing even kind of goes out on top of you already being, you know, tired from the day before, and now you're flying an F-Series aircraft, that, yeah, I mean, this could really impact you. I mean, it mentally impacts me just thinking about it. I can't imagine what the real physiological difference is. I'm getting, yeah, I I am with you. I am getting worn out just reading this article. Like, I I was... I was getting worn out reading this article because I was like, oh, man, yeah, no, this would this would really just mess me up. Um, <laughs> so let's get into the control logic, right? So this kind of goes with the controls at the top. So I don't know really where I draw the line between control logic and controls uh, or if there's, like, another thing at play here that I just missed. But let's talk about the control logic, right? So th- they're making they're, – they're maintaining the same speed on approach, the pilot is. Um, so they're – they basically touch down around 50 knots faster than normal. Uh, and when they touch down, um, the jet was eight degrees shallower than it should have been. Um, and then basically while that speed, uh, was appropriate for the approach, the airfield, the pilot should have disengaged the speed hold, which would have reduced the velocity for the landing. Um, and so, there was no audible warnings that that didn't happen, and so it's dangerous from that you know standpoint. Um, and then, as, I wonder if that's like a typical like thing you would do just as you're going into descent. If you just typically like know what angle angle you're at, and you just turn off speed control completely. And if in this like degraded mental state, plus being you know real fatigued from looking at this really blurry HMD. Like you just you miss a step almost, and it just makes everything a little bit worse. Yeah, I don't know. Some of our pilot friends in Slack need to answer this question for us. <laughs> there you go. Um, but uh, so so then they also have. Uh, let's see here. As the um, so as they he the pilot was going down the the runway um, at this higher speed, uh, they had to push the stick forward to bring the nose down. Um which basically had the result of what was almost a three-point landing, which is when all when all three of the landing gear legs touched down simultaneously, um, which uh, even I understand is, is a not... You shouldn't do that, right? It's back, back first and then nose. Um, <laughs> and so the nose gear... So that, that's... The nose gear is actually last to contact. They actually mentioned that here in the article. Um, but it bounced. So, so when you did the three-point landing, it bounced. Uh, and it threw the nose up violently, and then the pilot tried to jam the nose back down um, to bring a fighter to the stop, and then uh, the oscillations happened, and that, that's a scary thing to imagine, right? <laughs> like you're trying I, just, to- I can see this in my head, right. and I would, if you were like the ATC in the control tower on this base, I would just be having a meltdown, because like you, what do you even do? You can't help them. You got to hope that they could figure it out in the moment and start calling the paramedics now. Like at, th- at this point, where they're bouncing off your runway, right. I, d- I don't even know what to think. Yeah, I have a I have a fun fact 
I, I call it fun, but I, I do have a fact about how long this entire thing. And remember, the pilot survived through all this with non-life-threatening injuries. So how? Uh, right. <laughs> this is just yeah. nuts. <laughs> I have a fun fact about how long all this took too. Uh, so take your bets. Uh, I want I want to know what your bet is for how long this entire thing lasted. This whole bit. Yeah. I, like two minutes. Okay. L- well, like on the runway. Oh, on the runway? Yeah, from touchdown know, fi- to eject. 15 seconds. Okay. So so remember that 15 seconds. Um so yeah, as as their uh, as oscillations are happening happening the uh the pilot started trying to overcorrect by, you know, moving the stick uh to recover and and do the landing attitude. Um, and so here's a, here's a direct quote. The MP, that's the pilot, their stick inputs quickly fell out of sync with the air, aircraft pitch oscillations and the aircraft control cycles. So, uh, that overburdened the jet's computerized flight control system in which a glitch subsequently meant that the trailing in- edges of the horizontal stabilizers were deflected down and locked, which in turn pushed the nose down. So because of his actions, the, the system locked everything, which pushed the nose down. Um, <laughs> a lot going on there. Wow. Oh man, that's that's terrifying. Like, cause that's like if your system locks up on you, then you're not you're not in control anymore. That's nuts. Yeah. Um. So basically, uh, the the here's the here's the rub though. Uh, when the pilot was questioned, um, neither the instructor or the test pilots were familiar with some of the details of the control logic. So, um, you know, basically this jet flight controls logic is so complex that it's impossible to train all the pilots on every single possible scenario. Um, And you want to read that one? I see you highlighting it. What in the world? That's so nuts. So in this article, it actually mentions the fact that the simulator itself does not accurately represent the aircraft flight dynamics seen in the scenario. Furthermore, in the flight simulator, you can land at high speed and you can consistently recover from exactly what happened here. You can recover from the bounce. So you you ha- if he had the correct training, which it sounds like he did, he should have been able to recover the aircraft. That's yeah. nuts. Yeah. They had two members of the accident investigation team who were able to successfully land the jet under the same conditions. Um, you know, re- you know, replicating the speed and attitude. But again, there's other factors at play here. Um, but the fact that the simulator can't accurately model reality is a huge problem too, right? Um, so, uh, yeah, it's a, it's an issue with fly-by-wire flight control systems. Um and uh, basically, okay, so so we're at the tail end of this. The pilot's final effort was basically to recover, uh, to recover the jet. Basically, saw him hold the stick back, um, which would bring the nose back up, and then select full afterburner on the the engine as an attempt to abort the landing and get back into the air. Uh, however, it was made impossible because those deflected stabilizers it, it kept it down. Right. So the pilot realized that this was not going the way it should have. And because of the control logic here, the stabilizers went down, meaning the nose was down and they couldn't pull back off. So they did. Um, I, th- I think the um, let's see. Did, did I read that? 
uh, the afterburners do they actually oh the, okay so the pilot would normally do that um but i don't i don't know if they actually selected the afterburners because that would make it even worse right uh the, the article we're lucky they didn't here. yeah or yeah. we're lucky if they did not in this case right um and so that's that's the whole issue with control logic there um going into this pilot distraction so the accident report kind of also noted that the pilot had a an additional tangential distractions on the mind um kind of that added to the here and now worry about the head mounted display so a day earlier actually the pilot was notified of exposure to the covid-19 virus uh so that obviously had a lot to do with it right and um you know they, they were waiting on the test results and and so that was weighing heavily on the mind um there there were other more immediate distractions too like a poorly lit runway area that meant he had to uh, point into the black abyss to get his jet back onto the runway. Um, and this was compounded with the green glow issue. So there's a lot of stuff going on there. That's a, that's a lot of human factors uh, that we just rattled off there with this specific incident. Um, and it really makes me have a massive appreciation for forensic folks out there doing this tough work of exactly identifying what went wrong in this scenario. And this report here is evidence that their work is not going unnoticed. Like this is a, a insane just set of events. And it, it's a, it's a miracle that this pilot survived this thing. Um, back to your 15 seconds, right? You thought all this 15 seconds on the runway. Uh, this all happened within five seconds on the runway. Oh my! Um, from, Odin, that's wild. Yeah, from Holy from cow. when the tires hit the tarmac to the pilot's ejection, uh, five seconds. Um, let's see. Talk here. about some fast twitch muscle response. That's wild, man. Yeah, uh, I have to say, like, I think what I'm, I don't know what I'm pulling the most out of this article, but I, I think it's still pretty insane that their training is so hi-fi that i mean they're they're trained to even recover from these really serious instances and likely if the simulation was just like the real thing he may have recovered from it and like kept the jet so that's blowing my mind and although like i know i know mental fatigue is definitely a big deal here at the same time like you have to think most of these pilots and most people in the military they probably are fatigued when they're having to do their really intensive job so the fact that they're able to even this pilot's able even to recover and eject from the aircraft in time to save his own life is just mind blowing. Yeah. Uh, $176 million in damage. <laughs> no surprise. Uh-huh. How much is that is the aircraft? That's a lot of, that's, that's a lot of paychecks. Um, <laughs> yeah. Let's see here. Uh, so here's, here's another fun fact. Uh, we often yeah. hear a lot about how the F-35 is an easier aircraft to fly than previous generations. Um, and one test pilot actually went as far to say that it was the easiest aircraft they've ever flown in their life. Um, but comments from the uh, pilot involved in the May 19th accident uh, present a different picture. The aviator the aviator reflected that he was not only fatigued at the time of crash, had been suffering uh, increasingly poor sleep, but also the, found the F-35 to be significantly more tiring to operate than previous aircraft. So, um, and, and their previous aircraft was the F-15E Strike Eagle. So 
this uh like i guess this is the importance of like researching human factors right because you you have operator satisfaction being measured here where most test pilots uh will say yeah this is totally easy and then you have the one that depending on where they're coming from in this case it was the f-15e strike eagle saying actually this is more tiring to operate and and maybe it could be easier but if it's fatiguing you more in the long run then then that could be an issue too um so human factors researchers just remember to keep all variables in mind (laughs) What also sounds like in terms of – I don't understand how this works, so I'm going to speculate a lot. Um, That's what we put do. Put that up, up front here. But it also sounds like the difference between the two aircraft and because uh, you're – there. it looks like there's a comparison that's made from an interview in Air and Space Magazine between the F-35 and the F-15E. Uh, and it mentions the biggest difference is basically how you approach flying the thing from the high angle of attack and advanced control logic. And you, you're typically, from the F- F-15E perspective, you're, you, you're not used to low speed, high AOA performance, angle of attack performance um, from your other aircraft. So that's that's kind of odd that it's that different for the two types of pilots i don't know how it works in the military how it works for pilots what you if you typically only fly one series or type of aircraft but it seems like switching between those two could have just a high just a high like learning curve of difference especially because this article specifically calls out being able to do those really fast speed um, landings and having you know a different angle of attack versus what the what this aircraft actually expects you to do um and then the of course the advanced control logic in there which yeah. to me is definitely the scariest part that the the control logic glitched and locked everything down um that i don't know that i could only imagine it, as me as a person outside of the aircraft who knows nothing about flying freaks right. out from that i can't imagine what that feels like with things in your hands and you're trying to make decisions on the fly yeah so uh, this, this whole article is giving me mad respect for those in forensics. Like I still remember, uh, that keynote from 2018, the sinking of the Alfaro, like this, th- you know, there's a massive investigation on this and, and, uh, uh, definitely kind of highlights the importance of human factors still to this day, even with the newest, latest and greatest jets out there. Like it's, it's still a thing. <laughs> Still important. Think about what you're designing for people. <laughs> Job security. Yeah. Uh, any any uh, last nickels on this one, Blake? Uh, that was just a really good pick. That was fun to go through. We haven't done a whole lot of aviation in a while, and I always kind of enjoy going back to the, the human factors aviation routes. Yeah, huge thanks to our friends over at The Drive for our news story this week. It was a ton of fun to talk about. And and special thanks to Dan for bringing it to our attention in our Slack. Uh, If you guys want to follow along, we do post the links to all the original articles in our Slack as we find them. Uh, So join us over there for more discussion. Uh, We're going to take a quick break, and then we'll be back to see what's going on in the Human Factors community right after this. Human Factors Cast strives to bring you the best in Human Factors chatter every week. We pack news, interviews, reviews, and overall fun conversations into each and every product that we put our seal of approval on. But we can't do it without you. You see, the Human Factors Cast Network is 100% listener supported. All the funds that go into running this show come from the listeners. That's why we're giving back to our supporters on Patreon now more than ever. Pledges start at just $1 per month 
and include rewards like 24-7 access to our exclusive Human Factors Cast Slack channel, personalized professional reviews, and Human Factors Cast Infinite, a Patreon-only podcast where the topic is Human Factors Etc. We're always updating our rewards, so stop by patreon.com slash humanfactorscast to see what support level may be right for you. Thank you all, and remember, it depends. All right, and we are back. Uh, so before we continue, I just want to remind everybody that we have Human Factors Minute. I love this thing so much. Uh, <laughs> um so basically what Human Factors Minute is, for those of you who are just joining us, this is a, a little thing where we take a little nugget of Human Factors and we break it down and smash it right into a minute and put it in a feed for everyone who supports us at the $5 level or more on Patreon. And uh, this thing is going, man. This thing is going. We have so many in the hopper now. Uh, I think Blake and I are good to take a vacation over the uh, the holiday here without us having to make any more of these because we have so many coming out, uh, coming your way. Over the last month, we've actually talked about things like task analysis, the communications technical group at HFES, uh, machine guarding, human systems integration. If things like this interest you, uh, you know, consider supporting us on Patreon. It really helps the show out. It helps us go to things like HFES where the uh, the fees are really high and that's okay. It's a professional thing, but it allows us to go there and help bring you coverage for that type of thing. And if you like that coverage, let us know. That's one way you can help support us is by going to Patreon. Everything that you spend there goes directly back into the show. Higher quality equipment, better fun tools for us to use to help make this podcast the best thing it can be. So uh, I'll leave it there. Um, But why don't we go ahead and switch gears and get into this next part of the show we like to call... It came from... It came from... It came from... Well, it came from Slack this week. You know, we ha- we've yes. had a lot of discussion in our Slack uh, over the last couple of weeks here. Uh, this is the part of the show where we search all over the Internet, basically, to bring you topics the community is talking about. Um, and this one actually comes from one of our listeners who reached out to us directly. Uh, they wanted to remain anonymous. Um, but so so we'll go ahead and read this on the show here uh, and then we'll give our answers. Uh, this person says, hi, I wanted to get your advice uh, on something. Uh, but I'm kind of embarrassed to put it in general chat, so I'm asking privately. One of my instructors told us at the beginning of my first grad school class to keep a daily HFE journal uh, to help see how HFE principles can be used in real life. Uh, I've been doing this for the last three semesters, and I've noticed many real-world HFE examples. My question is, can I use this journal on my resume? Since I work full-time, I'm concerned that since I haven't been able to get any HFE internships, that my portfolio won't look as great as other candidates as I transition to the HFE field. Should I transfer my journal to a blog or a Facebook page? I've seen other random blogs that showcase things like designs gone bad or other things like that. What do you think? All right, Blake, we answered this. Um, Do you want to read over your answer or do you want to answer it live? (laughs) I'm pulling up my answer now. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, so I knew I recognized this, so that makes me feel good. Yeah, so I pulled up my answer. It's it's a lot of the same stuff you've heard from me before, um, but it's kind of more specific for this instance, right? So I had, uh, I'll describe exactly what I said, but do it a little bit paraphrased because I'm wordy enough. Uh, so I had to do something similar in grad school and always thought something like this would be cool, either like as 
you know, small Twitter bits or whatever. Uh, so I definitely think that either creating either creating a blog, making it a medium blog, your own website for your portfolio or whatever you have is a great idea. Another kind of suggestion I threw out there is even making, you know, content out of it, make video content out of it, put it on YouTube or Instagram, just ways that you can show that you understand and can draw connections between the HFE principles or UX design principles you learn and then how it applies in the everyday world and systems of systems thinking. Um, so that would be definitely be cool. And I think that it's it's interesting the question about the resume because uh, looking at my answer, I don't know that I answered that portion of it as well. This is more of something to help you kind of generate and show people that you understand the methods that you've learned and the principles that you're applying and how you're doing it in the real world. Um, and it's much more about, in this case, creating content of your own that can kind of craft your brand strategy and things like that for your own portfolio site or your own website, which for UX researchers or HFE practitioners, I think it's a it's something that's a must even over what you would see for like a UX designer because UX designers will typically put together like case studies that show off the work they've done, the process they use. But HFEs, you don't see as many of their portfolios like showing elongated case studies because sometimes you work on proprietary stuff. You can't really show that off. So being able to have something like your own blog, create your own video content around the things you experience and how you apply HFE principles day to day could be really great. And it's another thing that you could be sharing across, you know, professional social media platforms like LinkedIn um, to, again, help if somebody views your profile and can give you a sense of what's going on in terms of how you apply things in your daily life. Um, the last bits of here aren't really as related to like, should I turn this journal activity into something that I can actually use and create with? Um, more so it was kind of getting at the point that I know I always harp on on the show is aside from, you know, creating content or applying for jobs, like it's always really important to be a part of local chapters, be a part of any kind of meetup groups that you can be a part of, uh, to help you also expand your kind of like network as well. Um, but other than that, I think it's a great idea and I think there's a lot you can do with something like this, but I'm going to pass it over to Nick cause I'm long winded enough. That's okay. I'm glad you were long-winded for reasons that will become apparent in a minute. Uh, so I think this is a great question. Um, you know, I absolutely think you can put it on your resume. I know you were saying, Blake, I don't know if you addressed it personally, but I think you can absolutely put it on your resume, right? Um, when Whenever you put something on, the, on your resume, uh, swing it in the way that you need to, right? So in something like this, right... Um, you can absolutely put it in as like a you you have uh, performed an analysis on uh, everyday items or you know however you want to phrase that right. Um, I don't think your idea of translating into a blog or a website is something bad. I think that's actually a great way to do this. Um, and uh, you know the trickiest part will be to sort of establish that history, right? You've been keeping a journal. And on your journal, there's a historical record. But if you do something like a website, you'll have to backfill some of those dates uh, to, to make it look like you've been doing this for a while. And it's not necessarily untruthful. It's not creating a false history record. You just have to make sure that that is apparent to show anyone who may look at your website or portfolio that you do have a long history of doing something like this. Um, so that's something that uh, I, I think you can certainly try. Um, you know, I've, I've just in t 
terms of uh, not being able to do internships um, and working in school, I get that. It's hard. Um, it's hard to juggle everything. And But I've seen plenty of folks get their first entry-level job without an internship. Um, so, you know, that's absolutely not something you should worry about. I think all of Blake's answers are definitely applicable and... and um, you know, I don't really have anything else to add there except for, yeah, this is a great idea. Absolutely do it. And if if any of you listening are in a similar position where you have something that you've worked on for like a, a class assignment or um, or even just observations that you've made, absolutely turn it into something that you can, um, you know, present on. Like that, that's that's a great idea. And it's, it's kind of cool with the journal in this case because it, it's already giving you the prompt and you're already, you already have experience doing it. So now you can continue doing it and even come up with more complex thoughts or as you learn new things about human factors or about different principles or read that new paper and try and figure out how to apply it to your life. You have a way to kind of share that with a lot of different people. So it's a, it's a nice thing that you can continuously do and build upon even while you're in the job search process. Hey, turn it into a podcast. We'd love to listen. <laughs> there we shout out on the show um yeah any other anything else to add to this one blake this was this was a fun one i love it when they come directly from the people who listen to the show and it's our community and um i love these ones yeah because it actually gets back to them and it makes me feel like the the answer is more important to give uh so thanks so much for asking the question and if anybody else has questions in slack feel free to ask us privately we're we'll we're not always going to put it on the show uh if you don't want it up here um, but this is yeah. the this is my favorite part of the show. So yeah, thanks for absolutely, asking. me too. And and we do ask for permission before we put it on there. So it's not like they just ask this out of the blue. And we're like, yeah, can we're just gonna say it on the show. Um, all right. Well, thank you, everyone. That's it for today. Uh, let us know what you guys think of the news story this week. Uh, I, for one, actually really enjoyed that breaking down that uh, landing there. If you want, you can join the discussion on our Slack or follow us all over our social channels at HFactors Podcast. If you really want to get in touch with us, Slack's the best way. But you can always send us an email at show at humanfactorscast.com. If you like what you hear, you want to support the show, there's a couple ways you can do that. You can either leave us a review on your podcast medium of choice. That helps get the word out for other people uh, who may be looking at the show going, I don't know if I want to listen to two dudes talk about human factors. Uh, Or if you want to go the other route, like I said earlier, you can consider supporting us on Patreon, where all your money goes directly into the production of this show. And of course, you can always reach us at our home on the web, humanfactorscast.com. Thank Mr. Blake Arnsdorf for uh, being on the show today. Where can our listeners go and find you if they want to talk about locking landing mechanisms? If you want to talk about glitches in your locking landing mechanism, you can always reach me in Slack at Blake. Uh, you can also find me across social media at Don't Panic UX. As for me, I've been your host, Nick Rome. You can find me across social media at Nick underscore Rome. Thanks again for tuning in to Human Factors Cast. Till next time. It depends. Spacecraft, railway locomotives, nuclear submarines, healthcare, jet aircraft, these are all examples of highly technical systems and organizations, and all have one particular thing in common. They all involve humans. Humans who want to do amazing things and are using technology to achieve them. They all have something else in common. They have amazing people ensuring that the users who are involved can do what they need to do, are safe when they do so, and have the optimum user experience. 
These people are Human Factors practitioners, and on 1202, the Human Factors podcast, they talk to me, Barry Kirby, about what they do, sharing their career paths, highlighting their ideas and best practices, and fundamentally raising awareness of our discipline. Find us on 1202podcast.com, on social media, and on your favourite podcast directory, because it's more than just common sense.